This is When Everything is Missions, the podcast hosted by Matthew Ellison and Jenny Spitters. The burning passion, the apostolic fire within Paul was to be in the unmitigated presence of the Lord Jesus. And he understood that in order to go to his heavenly home, he had to take the gospel to the regions beyond. And that's the thing that drives me. That's why I'm a missionary. On today's episode, we pick up the conversation from the last episode, joined by co-founder and leader of the Live Dead Movement, Dr. Dick Brogdon. We'll answer the question, what does it look like to bring the gospel to all nations in part two of today's interview? Greetings and welcome once again to the When Everything Is Missions podcast. I am Matthew Ellison. I am joined by my good friend and co-host, Denny Spitters. We also co-authored a book by the title, When Everything Is Missions, and we've got some exciting news. We have a companion book coming out. It's called Conversations on When Everything Is Missions, and over the next several months, we're going to be highlighting authors who contributed to that second book. Denny, great to be with you, brother. Yeah, good to be back, and good to do part two here with uh, Dick Brogdon. Welcome, Dick. We're glad to have you, and... uh, So glad to be able to highlight your chapter in the book. I believe it's almost the last chapter, if not the last chapter, because it's really prophetically driven. Thank you for offering that. Great to be with you guys. Thank you. Well, one of the things that uh, we talked about in the first session was um, you talked very strongly about the, the value and the significance of God being the missionary God of the Bible. And uh, our first book, When Everything is Missions, one of the things that we said in that book is uh, that often the church doesn't do missions well because it doesn't think about missions well. And I would add to that that one of our emphasis were that, that the church tends to often, and so do individual disciples, base their idea of missions off from their own preferences and their own desires and their own thinking, rather than the Bible's clear uh, commissioning statements that Jesus gave and that Paul gave to us. And uh, I want to start this section off again by quoting uh, a quote by Ralph Winters that says, The Bible is not the basis for missions. Missions is the basis of the Bible. That's a really strong statement, and I know that that's your heart. Why don't you um, use that metaphor and talk about it a bit? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think it's so critical. We can fall into a couple subtle errors. One of the errors would say, yeah, there's missions in the Bible. A second error would say, yes, missions is a major theme in the Bible. Why are those errors? It does disservice to the heart of God because missions is the theme of the Bible. It is a missionary book from the heart of a missionary God. And if we don't understand that, then we don't exegete the text well and we become progressively inward and self-serving because we look to the text for indulgences or for comforts, and I'm not against anyone being comforted, but we miss the grand narrative, the meta-narrative, the diachronic story that across time there's been this consistent message that God 
will be glorified by every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and everything in Scripture points to that. His people, Israel, were chosen to be a light to the Gentiles. They were given this opportunity. It wasn't just a mandate. It was a privilege to express the heart of God to all the earth, that all the earth might know and be blessed. It's all through the Old Testament. It's all through the New. And when we diverge from that, we naturally turn inward and we turn away from the great themes of God's glory amongst all peoples, and we're the lesser for it. So our passion and the purpose of your book and this podcast is just to bring our attention back to a missionary God who has a missionary scripture so that the church will be the missionary body of Christ. And all of these themes converge on the glory of God amongst all nations, tribes, tongues, people. We're just so driven by that in a wonderful and compelling way that our heart is to see all people read the scriptures through that lens. Yeah, you mentioned the meta-narrative and For folks that are not familiar with that terminology, it just means the master story. And you're right, Dick, we get so caught up in the subplots and the subplots are there. They're they're sub themes, sub stories, but they all complement the master story. And uh, I really love the orientation of of how you bring that out. So, you know, uh, continuing on the same thing here, um, the Western church is more and more detached from sent missionaries. Let me ask a blunt question that most Christians are puzzled by. Why are you a missionary? What for? Why, why would you leave the comforts of home, the conveniences of America, the closeness of family, and go there? I love the question. I leave home because I want to go home. I feel so keenly what Paul felt when he said, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. And I don't know which one I will choose, but I know this. To be with Christ is far, far better. The burning passion, the apostolic fire within Paul was to be in the unmitigated presence of the Lord Jesus. It was all that thrilled his soul. I want to know Christ. He wanted to be with him. It drove him. And he understood that in order to go to his heavenly home, which is far, far better, he had to take the gospel to the regions beyond. And that's the thing that drives me. That's why I'm a missionary. This earth is not my home. I long with every fiber of my being to be in the unmitigated presence of Jesus. No night, no death, no sin, no curse. It's the far, far better. And I just don't get to go home my heavenly home, till I leave my earthly one and preach the gospel to every nation as a witness in partnership with my brothers and sisters in Christ so we can all go home. I put it this way. I'm a missionary kid. My parents tried to educate us. It didn't work. My mom about killed us. We about killed my mom. So we ended up going to boarding school when I was young, seven years old. Now, I happen to love boarding school. I think that 90% Missionary kids have a good experience at boarding school and 10% write the books because the literature is kind of negative. But I loved boarding school. It was great. There were sports. There was nature clubs. I, I loved it. I really did. All the same, I would be at school three months out of the year and one month I would be back home. And when the end of term came, I would sit on the steps of that school, my eyes fixed on the corner of that little dirt road, 
where my father's Peugeot 504 with its little bent up roof rack would any moment turn the corner. My little heart was beating. I liked school, but it wasn't home. I wanted to go home. I wanted to be with my mom and dad. That's why I'm a missionary. We are, if you will, standing on these stone steps of earth, longing for the far, far better to be in heaven with God and his sweet presence forever. But we've been given an assignment to do. And he very bluntly tells us that we don't get to go home until the gospel is preached to every nation as a witness. And then the end will come. So I leave home because I want to go home. I love it. I love it. I love that, too. It, um, I want to kind of piggyback on that question just a little bit more. Uh, so many people will listen to what you just said and go, well, that's great for you because you're a missionary, but I'm just a disciple, just a follower of Jesus, uh, you know, plain old nine to five guy. Um, how does this really apply to me? And I think you you might have made it obvious, but I don't think it's obvious anymore. So make it obvious to me as a nine to five guy that heard what you said and go like, well, that's great for you, but I'm never going to be a missionary. Yeah, great question. We increasingly evidently do not live in an isolated world. And what happens to you does affect me and what doesn't happen to you also doesn't happen to me in an increasingly uh, critical sense. This commission that God gave, he didn't give it to the Nigerian church. He didn't give it to the Indian church. There is no one exempt from this commission in scriptures. The powerful word of our Lord, our command, our marching orders, they were given to us. It wasn't an individual commission. It was a collective commission, and we are a family, and we are an army, and together we've been given this assignment, and the assignment is global. It must span to every ethnic group, whether those are those embedded in Western Sahara or Morocco, or whether those are immigrant Iranians and Syrians that are flooding into the United States and all around Europe, we have together been given a global assignment. And if we don't together approach it, we're not going to accomplish the task. Now, we do have different roles within that. And geography isn't necessarily the trump card. I have two boys, and I tell them this, Luke and Zach. I say, boys, I don't care what you do. I don't care where you live, but you must Give every ounce of your being for the glory of God amongst all nations. That mm. might mean you deploy to Yemen. That might mean you're a sender. That might mean you're an intercessor. It'll probably mean a combination of both. We have never been exempted for praying to the Lord of the harvest for laborers to go. Everyone, a janitor in Seattle, has been commissioned to pray to the Lord of the harvest that laborers be sent. We have never been exempted from financially letting our heart follow our treasure. And we, whether we're a school teacher in Phoenix or a retiree down in Arizona, we still have this mandate upon us to live in a wartime mentality of seeing the commission done. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your health. 
We all have to participate and everybody can pray and everybody can give and everybody can go in the sense that some cross the aisle at Walmart to that lady who's fully hijab, scared out of her mind, smile at her, help her buy some groceries, invite her over to your home or whether that means, you know, you go right into North Korea. So there are no exemptions. We cannot like in the old days of Europe, pay someone to go die for us. We have to go ourselves or we have to make sure that others are going and supporting them in our prayers and our finances. It's, it's an all-in collective thing. It's not an individual response alone. Yeah, no one is exempt, and no one should want to be exempt. It is a privilege and an honor to be a part of the family business, Dick, as you say. Let's press into that just a little bit more. You talk about self-denial in your chapter as being central to getting the gospel to the unreached peoples of the world. So how can the process of daily denial fuel and connect disciples and local churches to their role and obedience to 2414? And let me go one step further. How can people die daily to themselves? They're not on the mission field necessarily, like you. How can they die to themselves daily for the glory of God among the unreached? I think one of the primary weapons of the enemy against God's great passion for his glory amongst every people is fear. I Mm. face that every day in Saudi Arabia. There is a militancy here. There is an arrogance, the two holy mosques. You know, there's a hubris that I haven't encountered in other parts of the Arab world. And you know what? It's hard. It's hard to open up your mouth when you're rejected so many times. It's hard. It's not complicated. What we do is not complicated. It's just hard (laughs) to be rejected, to be scorned. You know, I'm evangelized here as much as I try and evangelize others. It's just hard. And you go through that day by day, week by week. You have to make a clinical decision. Today, I am going to open up my mouth. I'm going to declare the unsearchable riches of Christ. They're going to mock me. They're going to call me names. They're going to threaten me. But I'm going to press through that fear barrier barrier, and proclaim Christ with my mouth and my life. Well, guess what? Same devil, same tactics right back in middle America. There is a fear to stand with full-throated allegiance and behavior for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't overcome that fear within your neighborhood or the guy that you work with or the one you're shopping next to or the lady in the library that's checking out books for kids next to you, if you don't overcome your own reluctance, your own uh, concern for image, what people think of you, if you don't overcome that on a daily basis in America, if you're not making disciples within your own context, if you're not crossing that aisle proverbial or literal that I talked about earlier to engage an immigrant into your community, guess what? There's nothing magical on that airplane. There's no fancy spray that you don't do it over in your home country that you automatically start doing it in a difficult context cross-culturally through another language. We have to break through the fear barrier wherever we are. And one way we deny ourselves is to say, today I'm going to open up my mouth and I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to do my best to be winsome, but if it just comes out awkward and blunt, I'm going to trust the Lord to use that because I'm going to discipline myself and die to my own desire to be respectable for the obedience of opening my mouth and proclaiming Christ. I'm going to figure it out and work how to do that in a way, again, that is understandable. But at the end of the day, 
My goal is to be obedient and to share this precious gospel. So there's a litany of other ways we could do it as well, but that's just one to start. Overcome the fear in your home culture of opening your mouth and talking about Jesus. Deny yourself the respectability, the comfort, the convenience of staying silent because the devil doesn't have to hurt you if he can silence you. If he can silence you or make your message garbled, he's done his job. We got to push past that. And we do so by denying ourselves. You know, Dick, you talk about deny ourselves this desire to be respected. I, I see people posting stuff and talking about stuff right now in this cancel culture. They're not getting respected anyway. <laughs> Why not proclaim the gospel, you know, and be in the company of Paul? And, you know, if you suffer any persecution or you lose your respect or people don't respect you, so be it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Boy, that's really sound, solid, practical advice. I, I just think that so often uh, people forget that um, missionaries are real people. Um, they're not super Christians. They are those who are obedient to the gospel and obedient to the call to take the gospel to all nations. Um, we never know who's listening on this podcast, but I'm sure that there are some that the Holy Spirit has spoken to and is speaking to about serving him uh, cross-culturally. I want to talk about something you write in this chapter. You write that as you struggle with the thought of possible martyrdom or torture, you fear that you would squeal like a stuck pig, quote unquote. And uh, another quote you have, you say, quote, I have concluded that the only way to die well under duress is if I die daily. So speak to some present and and maybe even future um, cross-cultural workers and missionaries and and even those of us as followers. What must we do to enter uh, to, to endure? What must we do to endure? whatever the future brings. I think I mentioned it in my chapter, and I love the illustration of when we attempt to live the crucified life, if we try to crucify ourselves, we only make a mangled mess of it. Think of it physically. Who of us would really have the strength to drive a spike through our own feet? Maybe by some sheer surge of adrenaline we did that. Could we really seize a spike in our left hand while we're riding in pain and nail that spike with our right hand, probably impossible. Let's say by some miracle you did that. How do you crucify your right hand? Your feet are nailed to the cross. Your left hand's nailed. How do you crucify your right hand? You cannot crucify yourself physically. It's literally impossible. You just mangle the job. Well, the same truth is applicable spiritually. We can't crucify ourselves spiritually. We can't die daily under our own power or by our own design. And in the mystery of how the Lord accomplishes his beauty in us and calls us into that sharing in the death of his will, he hands the hammer to the one who is near. God gives the hammer to your wife or to your child or to your board or to your leader or to your colleague or your teammate. And he asks the one and empowers the one that you're in the daily interaction of life with to pound away at your flesh, to pound away at your rebellious instincts, to pound away at your selfishness, 
And what does it do to our image of Jesus if we think of him suffering on the cross or carrying the cross to Golgotha, if he starts spitting on those who are jeering or cursing those who are crucifying him, it would spoil the picture, but that's what we do. The Lord begins to refine us through this daily process of those who are near, pounding away at our flesh, and we vote them off the island, and we gossip, and we murmur, and we criticize, and we lash back. Jesus wants us to die daily at the hands of those who are near and to like it, and not to fight back against them or lash out at them. And the reality is, Jesus will crucify us most often and most painfully by those within the household of faith, not necessarily the nations out there or the lost person across the street. And so what we understand just in basic Christian discipleship is if we do that well, if we will let our wives crucify us, our children crucify us, our friends crucify us, and accept that as from the Father's hands, and if we've made a thousand little decisions to die to self in where it's private and the stakes aren't high, when that moment comes and the sword's on your neck or the gun is to your head, guess what? You made that decision months ago, years ago. You don't falter at that last hurdle because you have been dying all along. And in in a very real sense, we will come to that moment, that critical moment, with a sense of joy because we know that that's not the day that we die. That's the day that we begin to live. Amen. We've been dying to self all along, and that's our liberation. That's our home going. And it might be something drastic like I'm referring to now, or it might be something large and broad, but we rejoice at it. Maybe it's prison. Maybe it's expulsion. Maybe it's a beating. I have two friends this week that just got the crud pounded out of them right here in this area because of their faith. But they are responding with great joy because that wasn't the first time they surrendered their will. They have made a series, a litany of decisions to die to self. And then when the moment of testing comes, there's joy in that because you're, you're living. You're not dying. You're coming yeah. into the life of Christ in a fuller sense. Yeah, beautiful. Well, Dick. Maybe one more thing from your chapter here. Uh, encourage our listeners with a quote, and all we have to do is wash the Father's dishes. Yeah, this is one of my favorite memories of being a kid. Our tradition at Christmas was to open up our presents early on Christmas morning, maybe similar to you. And so the presents would be assembled. They would be under the Christmas tree. You know, we would have sorted them by piles for the different names. We'd go to bed and we would wake up so early on Christmas morning because we just couldn't wait to open up those presents that the Lord had given to us or that our parents had given to us. And, and of course, my parents would want to sleep past 4.30 or 5 in the morning, but we're up early. We want our parents to get up to open those presents. So if my father would have emerged from where his bedroom was and said to us three eager children who wanted to open these presents, all right, guys, we're going to open these presents. But first of all, these dishes of the kitchen must be washed and all the tables cleaned in all of the house as a witness. And then we'll open our presents. What do you think we would have done? I would have run on my little seven-year-old legs to the kitchen. I'd have grabbed my sister's hands, whether they wanted to go or not. I'd have said, let's go to the kitchen. Let's wash these dishes. Let's clean these tables. I would have mobilized anybody within earshot. 
Let's clean up this house and get it done. Why? So we can open up our presence. And the reality is the great gift of God, eternal life in Christ Jesus with the assembled throng from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It is out there extended to us. It is a gift of God waiting for us to open it. And the only thing we have to do is wash the Father's dishes, go into all the world and preach the gospel of the kingdom to every nation as a witness, and then the end will come. Wow. Praise God for that. Thank you, Dick. Yeah. Dick, it has been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast for these last two episodes. I know Denny and I have been blessed, and I trust that our listeners have also been blessed. Yes. So thank you again, my friend, and may God bless and establish the work of your hands for the sake of his glory. Thank you, Dick. Yes, thank yeah. you, Denny. Thank you, my brothers. Folks, we'll see you next time. God bless. When Everything is Missions with Matthew Ellison and Denny Spitters. Hit the subscribe button in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Find the book, the podcast archive, and tons of free info online at whenevertheringismissions.com. This podcast is presented by 1615 Missions Coaching.